Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Mark Minium. Well, in Romans 1.20, it says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, that's us, mankind, so that men are without excuse. And from this we know that there's really no true atheist. For created man knows that there is a creator. His conscience, his intellect declare to him that there is a God. God has made his existence plain to them. It says in, in, there in uh, Romans, Romans chapter 1. But without the word of God, without the Bible, man could go no further. You could look out at the universe, you could look out at the stars, and you could know that God exists, but you wouldn't know who he is. You wouldn't know his identity. You would know he exists, but would not know his name. Well, in today's lesson, we will see the God, the Son of God, demonstrating who he is to his disciples, that they might be better grounded in their faith, and that they might glorify him. Now, in John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Through him, that is through Christ, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And in John 1.14, as the, as the book of John goes on there in the prologue, he says, The word, that is Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And the commentators talk about the fact that when John and Peter and James were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw his glory when he was transfigured. But he is referring also to all the many times where they recognized the miraculous signs and saw that those signs pointed to the fact that Jesus is Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. So the creator of the world came down to earth, and he demonstrated his authority over creation, over life, over death, over sin, and over Satan. And it was these proofs, and ultimately his own resurrection from the dead, which he predicted, and then it came to pass, that confirmed that he is the Messiah, that he is, in fact, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. He turned the world upside down and defeated sin and Satan and changed the disciples' lives forever. Should I pull this out a little bit? Is that good? In today's lesson, we'll see his miracle over creation and the disciples' reaction as they recognize that Jesus is far more than just a man, that he is, in fact, the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And I've entitled today's lesson, The Lord Demonstrates His Authority Over Creation. And so I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 14, verses 22 and following, as we look at this incredible miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Now, remember the setting for this event. You remember the story from all the way back in Sunday school years, probably, when you heard about Jesus walking on the water. Well, the setting 
was he had just fed the 5,000. And just before that, the setting was, he had sent the disciples out for the first time on their own evangelistic crusade. Two by two, they went out. And they would minister in the towns and villages. And he told them to go and take nothing with you. No money, uh, just a, a one, t- one tunic um, and a staff. Some people say, well, they took their staff with them. That's why they did so well. <laughs> but that's all they had. They went out to the highways and byways, and they preached repentance. And he gave them power to heal the sick and cast out demons. And so they were excited to come back to tell him everything that had occurred. But they were also exhausted because that can be a very intense time when you're going out town to town. Remember, he told them, if they put you out, just dust yourself off and it'll be a testimony against them if they won't take you into their homes and and give the gospel out. And so they did that. In addition to that, they had just discovered, they had just found out the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And for many of them, he was the instrument that God used to point them to Christ himself. He said, I must decrease, he must increase. He said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So they came back and they were excited, exhausted. They were discouraged, probably about John the Baptist. And Jesus decided that he would take them with him away to a solitary place. And so remember, they crossed the Sea of Galilee in this one boat, and they were to get alone for some R&R time with Christ, which they did, but it was only for a short time because the crowds, having seen them arrive on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, followed, and this mass of crowd came upon them. And Christ lifted up his eyes, and he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them. And that day, on the hillside, he healed all their sick. There was no strikeouts with the Lord. Everyone that came and just touched his garment, everyone that came with any kind of an ailment, were healed that day. In addition to that, besides healing them physically, he taught them all day. And at the end of that day, we remember the story where the disciples said to Christ, send them away because everyone's getting hungry and we don't have anything to give them. And he said, no, you feed them. And you remember the story, how that went. It was an exciting story on the hillside because they looked at their balance sheet. I see Greg out there. And they looked at their balance sheet, their, their assets and liabilities, and they said, well, all we have is 200 denarii. That's not enough to even give them one bite. And then in addition to that, we don't even have a place to go get food. So how are we going to be able to feed them? And then Andrew said, well, I have one little boy here with a sack lunch. He's got five little loaves of bread and two fishes. But what is that among so many? If he would have just stopped and said, I have a boy here. Just turn him loose with the Lord and see what happens. But no, he said, but what is that among so many? And the Lord said, sit them down. And so they set them down, and then he fed them. And you know the story about the breaking of the bread, and he prayed. And in the end of that, they gathered up 12 basket loads of food, bread and fish at the end of that, after everyone had been satisfied. Well, that crowd... They were excited about what they had discovered. They thought they had discovered the Messiah, and certainly they did, but it was a Messiah of their own making. It was a different kind of Messiah than the real Messiah. You see, they wanted someone who would take care of them, that would feed them every day. In fact, 
they said, we've discovered someone like Moses had spoken of. There in Deuteronomy 18.15, when he said, there will come from among you one like unto me, like Moses. Well, this was the one like Moses. Moses fed them 40 years in the wilderness, so this would be one like him. And he could feed us for the next 40 years, just like Moses did. And so they looked for him the next day to feed them again. Well, that's the setting. And I want you to see, as we look in this section, there are three characteristics of true discipleship that we're going to see here. Three characteristics of true discipleship. True disciples are obedient. True disciples desire to be with Christ, the presence of Christ. And true disciples worship Christ in spirit and in truth. Whereas false disciples, and we'll see this also in this section, false disciples are disobedient. They don't so much desire the presence of Christ as they want his power. They want his miracles. They want his gifts. And false disciples worship themselves. And we'll see that in this section. But we come to the first section now, Jesus the protector. Verse 22 of Matthew 14. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Having your outline, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go. Why do you suppose Scripture includes this? That he immediately made those disciples go to the other side. He had just fed the crowd. Why not revel in the glory? Why not enjoy the fact that he had healed all their sick? He had fed them all until the point that they were satisfied, which, by the way, back in those days, it was hard to satisfy a crowd of hungry individuals. They were an oppressed nation. They didn't have everything all the time that they wanted. You couldn't just go and, and go to one of these all-you-can-eat places. It was rough. So it was a great day when they were satisfied to the point that there were 12 baskets left over. That's one of the reasons why they were so excited about this one called Jesus. And, and yet it says, and he immediately tells the disciples to go to the other side. You know, if you could come home from the Olympics here just a couple weeks ago and you had gold medals all over your chest, wouldn't it be great to revel in that glory and enjoy the fact that there'd be parades and excitement? Certainly the disciples and Jesus could have enjoyed that. But instead, he immediately has the disciples leave. Having your outline, it would only serve to increase the disciples' desire for an earthly kingdom. See, in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, it says... There was a dispute that arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest in the kingdom. Dispute among the disciples. You see, they were not immune from temptation. They could easily have been sucked into this mob mentality of this crowd of individuals and revel in the glory. See, this crowd wanted to make him a king even if by force and take him down to Jerusalem and have their will impressed upon Jesus. So the disciples didn't understand the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. It says in Mark 6, 52. It's an interesting verse. It says, For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. So in certain respects, these disciples 
were thinking like the crowd who followed Jesus, looking for more food. See, the next day, the crowd would come to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there they would find Jesus. And they would say to him, when did you get here? They couldn't figure out how it was possible that he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when they were with him the night before. They saw the disciples leave in the only boat, and Jesus wasn't with them. He had dismissed them, but they didn't really get dismissed. They were hanging around for breakfast. They were hungry. The next day, remember how you you eat all you can eat, and the next day you wake up and you're hungry, and you're wondering, how is that possible? Well, that was possible with them, just like it is with us. And they were looking for him the next day, and they were supposed to be gone. He had dismissed them. It says right here in the scriptures here, while he dismissed the crowd. Well, they weren't very obedient, were they? These false disciples. And they were looking for him the next day. And, and so he says to them, you weren't looking for me. He never answers the question, by the way, when did you get here? He goes right to the heart of the problem. And he says, you weren't looking for me because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you had your fill and you're back for another load. And that's actually the word in the Greek there, that the, when you fodder the cattle, you get all this grass and stuff together, and they put on the feed bag, and they eat. And that's the word that they use there. You're back for another load of food. That's why you were here for the de- next day. So they weren't looking for a spiritual Messiah who would set up a spiritual kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah that would take care of their needs. And their needs were that they wanted to be fed, They wanted to have him overthrow the Roman Empire and set up a perfect welfare state. Another 40 years, just like Moses in the wilderness. That was their idea of Messiah. So he knew the hearts of this crowd. In John 6, 15, it says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He was never deceived by this crowd. He knew their hearts. They saw only a political leader that could overthrow the Roman Empire and set up a welfare state. He does not come to man on man's terms. Christ comes to man on his terms, on God's terms. Nobody uses God. Not then, not now, and certainly not in the life of Christ. And a good example of this is the nation of Israel. Back in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often found in sin and debauchery of life, immorality, and idolatry. And God would often use the Philistines to punish them, to get their attention, to wake them up. And back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they were warring against the Philistines, and the Philistines were winning the war. And so the Israelites thought, we've got to do something about this. We're losing against the Philistines. Let's go get God. And so they sent a group back to Shiloh to go get God. Now, what that meant, really, was they were going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. If they got the Ark of the Covenant and brought that to the battlefield, then God would be with them, and they would, he would take care of this problem. They would win the war. And so they went and they got the Ark of the Covenant, Shiloh, and brought it back to the battlefield, and they said, Hooray, God is here. We're going to win this war now. And you know what happened in that story. The Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant and defeated, summarily defeated, the Israelites at that time. And it just goes to show that no one uses God. 
just like they wanted to use God in this circumstance, like a utility, like a magic genie that they could get whatever they wanted at any time that they wanted. That's not what God is like. No one uses him, not then and not now. And that doesn't happen today with us. I mean, the practical circumstances when we're sick, when we're unemployed, when the stock market is crashing, then we want to get close to God. We want to pray. We want to be in the Word. We want something that He's got that He can give us. But when it comes time to just be obedient to God and follow His Word and be in the Word and prayer, well, then we don't really want to do anything with that. And that's the way these false disciples were like. So the crowd was carnal. Having your outline here in John 6, they asked the question, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them. See, they wanted to be able to figure out how to make food. Just tell us how we have to do this, and then we'll do it. Give us the tricks. It's like, it's like when um, Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 wanted to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from, from uh, Peter. And, uh, and Peter rebuked him. What must we do? Well, he said, there's nothing you can do. You can't do a work to satisfy or please God. You can't. He said, you must believe in the one he's sent. That's what he tells them in John 6. So this crowd was carnal. They wouldn't be too long, and they'd be disinterested and leave Jesus and his disciples. It says in John 6, 66, from this time, many of his disciples, and I use that term loosely here, turned back and no longer followed him Notice he dismissed the crowd here in Matthew 14, but the next day they're looking for him. So they were disobedient. Well, there he is now, and he's praying on the mountainside alone. It says after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land. Well, what do you suppose he is praying when he's up on the mountainside alone? The Bible never tells us. Oftentimes, it tells us that Jesus went and he prayed all night and it doesn't tell us anything about what he prayed. But one place that it does tell us everything that he prayed is John 17. It's one of the few times we're let in on his entire prayer, the high priestly prayer. And in John 17, verse 12, it says, While I was with them, speaking of the disciples, he says, I protected them. Is it possible this is one of the times that he is protecting his disciples when they are out on the Sea of Galilee doing his will? He told them to go to the other side. Now they're out, and it's a, it's a rough storm. It got really windy, and they're rowing against that wind. Is he, is he interceding that you're blank there? Notice he protected them when he sent them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from this mob mentality. What chance do you think that they had of capsizing and drowning in the Sea of Galilee that night when Jesus was up on the mountainside and he was praying after he had dismissed them and they were doing exactly what he told them to do? You see, he brought them right into a second trial right after he had finished the first trial with them. The first trial was, he said, feed this crowd. And they looked at each other and they looked at him and they said, well, we don't have anything to feed them. We don't have any money. We don't have not enough money. We have no food. How are we going to feed them? And he said, we'll sit them down. 
And you know what those disciples obediently did that day on the hillside? They sat the crowd down in groups of 50 and 100, it says in Mark. Now, why would you put a crowd into these groups of 50 and 100? Well, it would, it would delineate some space between these groups so you can walk between them and distribute food that you don't have yet. <laughs> but Christ said, sit them down. And they didn't argue. They just set the crowd down and they got ready to feed them. So they were obedient, and God took them through that trial. And the next day, or the, that, later on that evening, he said, go to the other side. And he sent them out. And you think it was a surprise to Jesus that it started to get windy out on that Sea of Galilee? And they had a row all night? Not at all. So there he is, praying on the mountainside by himself. He tells the Father in the high priestly prayer, while I was with them, I protected them. And I'm convinced that night he was protecting them. Remember one time before in Mark chapter 4, he was protecting them when he was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. It was sometime before that event. And they were out in the Sea of Galilee before, remember? And they woke him up because he fell asleep in the back of the boat. Remember those wind and the waves got rough that night too. To the point that they thought they were going to capsize and drown. And remember, they're fishermen in this boat. These aren't individuals that are landlubbers, but there's, there's Peter, James, and John. Their dad had taught them how to fish. They'd lived all their life on the Sea of Galilee, and they were out there, and they woke up Jesus because they thought they were going to drown there in Mark chapter 4. And you remember what he did when he woke up? And it really shows the juxtaposition of the, of the uh, humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. He said, peace be still. And the Sea of Galilee went absolutely flat. It said, that everything went calm. It says those disciples, they were fearful of what was outside the boat. The wind and the waves. But after he stilled it and it went flat that night, they were terrified with who was in the boat with them because they had holy God in the boat with them that night. And they said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? It could get rough on the Sea of Galilee. And it got rough this night on the Sea of Galilee. I had the, the benefit with my family years ago. We actually were out on the Sea of Galilee. We went with pastor and a group, probably of 25, 30 people, and we were out there, and you could see how wide and big that Sea of Galilee is. It's about seven, seven and a half miles wide. It's about 13 miles long. And the interesting thing is it's located almost 700 feet below sea level. So because of that, and the fact that the hillsides rise up on both the east and west side of the Sea of Galilee, you can have cold air on the hillsides, the Golan Heights, you've heard of that, 2,000 plus feet above sea level, going down to the level of the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level. And the other interesting thing about the Sea of Galilee is it's only about 200 feet deep at its deepest point. So it's actually kind of a shallow lake. It's fresh water, body water, but they call it the Sea of Galilee. They also call it the Lake of Tiberias and a lot of other names. Lake of Gennesaret. And uh, that Sea of Galilee, because it's shallow, only 200 feet deep, that's less than the football field deep, still quite way, way over your head if you fall into it, you could drown. But it would warm up that water pretty fast. So you have the warm water heating up quickly during the day. And then when it gets cold at night, the Golan Heights and that, that, that wind would start to whip because you have this big differential in temperature. I read an article uh, off the internet. And I'll just read you a little tiny 
excerpt from this. This is written by Todd Bolin in uh, March of 04. He says, The Sea of Galilee is known for its violent storms, which can come up suddenly and be life-threatening for any on its waters. These tempests are caused by the situation of the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, in the Jordan Rift with steep hills on all sides. The cooler air masses from the surrounding mountainsides collide with the warm air in the lake's basin. Winds sometimes funnel through the east-west-oriented valleys in the Galilean hill country and rush down the western hillsides of the lake. The most violent storms, however, are caused by the fierce winds which blow off the Golan Heights from the east. Now, this is interesting. Get this. Now, this is a current article. One such storm in March 1992 sent waves 10 feet high, crashing into downtown Tiberias and caused significant damage to the city. Now, 10 feet high is a basketball net. If you can run really fast and jump really high, you might be able to touch the bottom of it. If you're in a boat that can hold 13 people and the side of the boat is what? Two feet? Two and a half feet? So you can step out over it because Peter's going to step out over this and walk across the water toward Jesus. You're not in a very tall vessel with maybe 10 foot high waves around you and it could get rough on the Sea of Galilee. And there's those disciples and they're rowing against the wind all night. So Jesus is protecting them. It says he sends them away from the carnal crowd. He sees them in the boat tossed by the winds and waves. It says in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So you see how he protected them that night? It kind of reminds you of uh, John 18, verses 4, verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> John, John 18, uh, it says how he protected them there. And the only thing I want to say about that is, remember there in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes leading this battalion, this detachment of soldiers. Some have said it's up to 600 soldiers in a detachment. And they come to get Jesus. And that night, there comes Judas with all these soldiers, plus the, the, the temple guard, and they had swords, and they had clubs, and they had torches, and they had lanterns. And Jesus comes out, and he said, Who is it you want? He makes them check their orders that night. They have to get their orders out. And they say, Well, we are supposed to get Jesus of Nazareth. And remember, he said, I am. And he uses the words there that, that Moses heard from the burning bush. I am. And they all fell down. You can miss that if you read John 18 real fast. You can miss the whole detachment falls down to the ground. And when they pick themselves up and they dust themselves off, if I was in that detachment, I'd be out of there. They'd be like, what are you? Th the whole crowd falls down. And then he asked them again, who is it you're looking for? And they say, again, they check their orders. He makes them say it again, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, then let my disciples go. He's not on your orders. This mob mentality that came out there to get him could have easily grabbed the, 12, the 11 disciples with Jesus and taken them right along. And the circumstances that occurred to Christ that night that we're all familiar with, the beating, the pulling out of the beard, the thorns, all of that, that could have happened to all the disciples. But that wasn't going to happen to the disciples that night because Jesus was protecting them just like he was protecting these disciples when they were doing his will and they were crossing that Sea of Galilee. Well, I have in your outline the disciples and their obedience. There's only one boat. How do we know this? It says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus heard what had happened regarding John the Baptist 
and the disciples, he withdrew by boat privately. It was only one boat. It says there in Mark chapter 6, verse 32, they went away by themselves in a boat. But John 6, 22 really confirms it. It says, when the crowd realized that only one boat had been there, then they started looking for him. And the disciples had left in that one boat. So this wasn't Harbor Place. There wasn't a whole bunch of boats down there. There was no pride of the Susquehanna and lots of boats at the docks. There was just one boat. And they got in the one boat, and they started across the Sea of Galilee. And they were only halfway across by 3 a.m. It says there in verse 24, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. And verse 25 says, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. The fourth watch of the night, there were four watches every night. The first watch would be, now if you were a watchman and you were in a watchtower looking out over the, the city, past the city walls and looking for any enemies that would come, you could be assigned first watch, second watch, third watch, or fourth watch. The first watch was six to nine. The second watch was nine to 12. Third watch, 12 to 3, and the fourth watch of the night was 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning. It would be getting toward dawn. Now, they had left immediately after he fed those on the hillside. Immediately, it says there, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. So what time was it? 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 8 p.m.? And now, it's the fourth watch of the night, and he's going to come walking to them, and they're only halfway across the Sea of Galilee, and it's 3, 4, 5 in the morning. They have been rowing literally all night long, from maybe 9 p.m. to maybe 9 a.m. or 6 a.m. So 8 hours, 9 hours, some say 12 hours that they may have been rowing out in that lake. And the whole time, they could have been asking the question, how was Jesus going to get here? They could have argued with him. There's no, in all three accounts in the Gospels, there's no discussion of why are you sending us without you? How are you going to get here? How are we going to get there without you and get back together again? They just got in the boat and started rowing. And they had to be tired and making very little progress. Oh, I have in your outline, the easy way would have been to go back. They're only halfway across. John 6, 18 and 19 says, A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed three to three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. Well, it would have been easy just to go back. You could have rationalized if you were out there rowing against that wind and the waves. You could have said, you know what? He told us to go there, but look, we're only halfway across. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. Let's just put up the sail, turn this thing around. we got halfway to go either way, and we'll go back and get Jesus, and it won't feel good just getting out on that dry land and resting our arms. But they didn't. They were obedient, and they rowed all night. You know one of the reasons I think they rowed all night? What was in the bottom of the boat? Amongst their feet, there were 12 baskets of loaves from just the day before. 
the one who told them to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee is the one that made such an abundance of food that everyone was satisfied to the point there were 12 baskets left over, and there they were in the boat with those 12 baskets. And they were probably rowing all night thinking, I wish Jesus was here. I really wish Jesus was here. And when that wind came up, they probably were thinking it would have been nice to have him in the back of the boat sleeping again like the last time. But one thing's for sure, those baskets had to be a reminder to them of the power of Christ. And he told them to go to the other side, and that's what they were going to do, no matter how long it took. Just keep on rowing. And so notice their simple obedience. And the result of that is going to be a blessing. The crowd didn't see what they were about to see. They were going to see the sign. They were going to see Jesus walking on the water. It reminds me of the servants in John chapter 2 who filled those six water pots up. Remember there at the first miracle of Jesus there in Cain of Galilee? His mom told the servants, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. And he says, go fill up six water pots. And there were 20 to 30 gallons. And they had to draw that from the well and fill those water pots up. And then he said, go and draw out now and give it to the master's ceremonies. The wine was empty. There was no wine. And it was going to be a disgrace for the family if they had run out of provision. Well, they drew out. They took it to the master's ceremony. It says there... In, the, uh, in John 2, 9, it says, The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. They knew where it came from. They had obeyed. And so they knew what was going on in that circumstance. Well, the Lord upon the water. Verse 25 to 27. This is the fun part when you were uh, a kid reading and hearing in Sunday school. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Well, some commentators have tried to say he walked alongside the water. He was on the shore. It's the same commentator, Barclay, has said that when the little boy took out his secret lunch, everybody else felt guilty and they took out their hidden lunches and they all shared. Why don't they just say they don't believe the Bible? Notice the disciples were terrified and proclaimed, it's a ghost. Would you say that about someone walking along the shore? I don't think so. In, in Mark chapter 6, it says, walking on the lake, he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him, they cried out. Notice how this is written like an eyewitness account of an individual that saw this individual coming across the water and they were scared. He was actually on the water and he was moving rather fast on the water when they saw him. And don't miss the sign. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it said Jesus did many other miraculous signs that weren't written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By believing, you might have life in his name. See, signs point to something beyond the sign. Signs are not the end-all, be-all all by themselves. If you were going to go to Hershey Park and you pulled over the sign that said Hershey Park and sat there for three hours and came back home and somebody said, well, how was Hershey Park today? He said, well, it was kind of boring. I just pulled over and I looked at the sign. I just sat there and nothing happened, so I came back home. And he said, well, you missed Hershey Park. You just sat there and looked at the sign. Well, the disciples, they're going to see more than 
just Jesus walking on the water, because when he gets in the boat with them, they're going to say, surely you are the Son of God. They saw past the sign, the miracle. Walking on the water, well, that's no problem for Christ. He created it. Look at Mark 4.41. That's when he said, peace be still, and everything went still. The waves just stopped. All creation does his bidding except for fallen angels and fallen man. The first is reserved for judgment. That's the fallen angels. The second lives under the grace of God day by day. But one day it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Think about Luke 19, 39 and 40 when he rode into Jerusalem there on Palm Sunday and they tried to get him to quiet down the crowd because they were singing Hosanna and shouting out. And, and he said, well, if they, if they kept quiet, even the rocks would cry out. All creation does the bidding of Christ. Well, we come to Peter's faith and lack of it. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Well, Peter gives a test to the Lord. As we know, Peter often speaks up without thinking. We saw that in Matthew 16, when he said, Who do people say that I am? And and when Jesus asked them and they spoke up and they said, well, some say you're Elijah and some say you're John the Baptist. And some say you're that prophet. And they said, well, who do you say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, you didn't figure that out on your own, Peter, but my father revealed that to you. Flesh and blood had not revealed this unto thee, my father, which is in heaven. So he spoke the very words of God. And then he began to show them how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be crucified and Peter took him aside and he rebuked him. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. The very same mouth that had just spoken the words of God spoke the words of Satan. And he was rebuked that day. Another time, Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow now. And Peter said, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll, I'm ready to follow you right now. I'll die for you. And he said, tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Well, Peter is the one with a foot-shaped mouth, and he's blurting out here, and he says to the Lord, he says, Lord, if it's you, just tell me to come out there. So be careful never testing the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. But Jesus knows his heart, just like he knows the crowd's heart, just like he knows them in John chapter 2. He would not accept man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. He wouldn't entrust himself to them in John 2. He knows Peter's heart, and he bids him come. So you see, Peter just wanted to be with Jesus. He wants his presence. He doesn't so much want some trick, some miracle. He just wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to get out of that boat and be with his Lord. See, true worshipers just want to be with Jesus. If I'm a true worshiper, I want to be with my Lord. If I follow my master, I want to be where he is. And these disciples, can't you see them out in that, that boat just thinking, I wish Jesus was here when that wind came up and they were just straining against the oars all night? True discipleship says, as long as Jesus is here, that's all I need. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil if God is with me, for thou art with me. It's not so much the power of Christ, it's the presence of Christ. The false disciples, they want his power. 
They want another load of food the next day. But, false, but true disciples, they want to be with him. Peter's the kind of guy, when Jesus was walking along, if he just stopped, Peter would be the one to run into the back of him. He just wanted to be with Jesus all the time. He was always close to him. Paul understood this when he said, and I found in whatsoever state I'm in, there with to be content. There he is in the Philippian jail, and he's singing with Silas because he's exactly where God wants him to be. He doesn't care that he's in jail. He just cares that he's where God wants him to be. He's in the presence of Christ. Well, having your outline, wow, notice Peter's obedience and faith. And we are quick to observe the next part of the story where he goes under the water. We all know that part. But you don't notice any other disciples jumping out of the boat and heading out to Jesus. Just Peter. He's excited. He wants to be with them. And I don't really think he even thought about the water. He didn't think about the wind. He just wanted to be in the presence of Christ. Lord, if it's you, just tell me and I'm coming out. So he said, come. There he comes. And then he got his eyes off the Lord. And we've heard many a message on that. He saw the wind. He was afraid. Lots of things can go wrong when you take your eyes off the Lord. Satan has much in this world to distract us. And he does. We get distracted by so many different things and take our eyes off the Lord. It's daily. It's hourly. It's by the minute. When I'm sighting in my bow, I've got to keep my, my pin, my sight pin, right on the target. If I take the, that pin off the target for anything, boy, Todd knows. <laughs> Jerry back, he knows. As soon as you release that arrow, you better keep that pin right on the target because if you want a quick look, you're going to miss. You don't have the right follow-through. You've got to keep your focus on the Lord all through life. There he is calling out to the Lord. He's jumping out onto the water. He's walking on the water. Then he's distracted. Well, it's the shortest prayer in all Scripture. Probably he knew who to call. Lord, save me. That's a short prayer. Notice the solid rock is Christ. And Peter didn't say, oh, I can handle this myself. I'll just do some quick doggy paddling. And Jesus is right there when we call. You notice how Matthew uses the word immediately. Immediately, verse 31, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. So there's Jesus, right on time, always right on time. Sometimes not our time, but always right on the correct time. You see, it's easy to be right on time when you're sovereign and you're omnipotent, and that is Christ. No problem. He can be, he's got total control of that Sea of Galilee and the circumstances that Peter's in. He's in absolute control. And he increased their faith. There they are. He, they get back in the boat. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. See, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And they're falling on their face before the Son of God. And they recognize who he is. They obeyed Jesus. They got in the one boat without argument. And they began rowing, and they rowed all night, and in the end, they saw the sign. False worshipers, they want to know what we do. What can we do to do the works of God? True worshipers, they're right there recognizing who they are and who Christ is. 
And number six here, don't miss the other miracle in this account. John 6.21 says it. Remember, they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, three, three and a half miles. I said it's seven, seven and a half miles wide. They had been rowing all night. It says in John 6.21, Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. That other three and a half miles, nothing to it. They got Christ in the boat, and they were immediately at the other side. You can miss that miracle when you read it. It says they reached the shore where they were heading. Often in life, when it seems we're going nowhere fast, if we just keep our focus on Christ, we'll find that we're a lot closer to where we are heading than where we might think. Well, remember the miracle that started this whole thing. The feeding of the 5,000. No money, no food, no assets on a net worth statement. They forgot they had the Lord God in their midst. But they were obedient. They set the people down in groups as the Lord had commanded. It says in Mark 6, 39, then Jesus directed them, that is the disciples, to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they set them down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Well, in today's story, they're obedient again. They took the one boat and they started out to the other side. No argument, no debate. They didn't get far. But as they rode, little did they know that they were getting close to seeing the glory of God. Because obedience always brings about great blessing. Well, lessons for our lives. Christ intercedes for us. He is at the right hand of God the Father. It says in Romans 8, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes for us daily. It may have seemed to the disciples that they were alone out in that Sea of Galilee, but they were not he was watching over them, just as he watches over us today. Number two, obedience always brings blessing. It may have seemed like little progress to an observer watching the disciples. If you were on the shore watching them rowing, they were rowing eight hours, nine hours, ten hours. They were only in the middle, but they were far ahead of their contemporaries, and they got the blessing of intimate fellowship with Christ. In John 17, 6, he says, in his high priestly prayer, he says, they have obeyed your word. Speaking of the disciples, they obeyed his word when they set those people down. They obeyed his word that night when they got in the one boat and started rowing all night long. We need to strive to be obedient ourselves, even when it's not the easy way, because it certainly wasn't the easy way for the disciples that night. Ultimately, we will know that it was the best way. To one day here at the Bema Seat of Christ, this one has obeyed your word. That would make it all worthwhile. So continue to press on toward the mark of a high calling in Christ Jesus. Number three, see the Lord upon the water and don't miss the sign. Christ is God in the flesh, the God-man. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. He is creator. He has total authority over creation. There's no problem for him to walk on the water. Number four, in this life your focus should be on the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Peter had it, lost it, then cried out, Lord, save me. And the Lord was right there. He's always there on time. It's easy to be right on time when you're omnipotent and you're sovereign. Finally, true discipleship is obedient. 
It just wants to be with Jesus and worships him with your life in spirit and in truth. False disciples, they're disobedient. The next day, the crowd was looking for Jesus. They weren't even supposed to be there. He had dismissed them. False disciples don't care to be with Jesus. They just want a miracle. They want a sign. They want a trick. You're looking for me because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Now you want another meal. The false disciples don't worship Christ. What do we do to do the works of God? What do we have to do? What's the works that you can give us? And then we'll just check off our checklist. We want to be able to make food ourselves. Well, the false disciples, they no longer followed him. It says, in, it says in the scriptures, from this day on, many of his disciples no longer followed him. The true disciples, Jesus says, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve, and Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Believing and then knowing. See, seeing is not always believing, but believing is always seeing. Seeing... They did not yet believe those, that crowd on the hillside. They saw the miracles. They were all healed. But they didn't believe the next day. What must we do to do the works of God? He said, you must believe. See, they weren't there. But Peter, he said, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. They just trusted Christ. They were obedient. They went out on that lake all by themselves, rowing all night. And soon they would see. Because believing is always ultimately seen. Well, the Lord demonstrates his authority over creation. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. <laughs> 